How does foreign policy create a boomerang effect at home? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Abigail Hall. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Abigail Hall. Abby received her PhD in economics from George Mason University, and she is a research fellow at the Independent Institute and an assistant professor of economics at the University of Tampa. Her research interests include political economy and public choice, defense and peace economics, and institutions and economic development. She co-authored Tyranny Comes Home, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism with Christopher Coyne, and this book will inform a lot of our discussion today. Abby, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you for having me. So in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today is, how does foreign policy create a boomerang effect at home? But I think we should probably kick it off with a quick exploration of what the boomerang effect exactly is. Sure. So um, when we were looking uh, in some previous research, we, we came across several instances where things that had been developed as a part of foreign interventions abroad had come to be used back domestically. And so what my co-author and I set out to do was to come up with a way of analyzing and explaining how it is that those tools of foreign intervention do come to be used back home. So what we wound up developing is what we refer to as the boomerang effect. So what we do is we identify several channels or mechanisms through which those tools that are developed for or implemented in foreign interventions abroad uh, then come to be used domestically. So, so ultimately, at, at a high level, what the boomerang effect is, is that the it's the effects of uh, military power and foreign affairs ultimately coming back domestically. Yeah, so it's it's definitely one of the effects of foreign intervention. So we, we're particularly interested in uh, this idea that is often put out there, which is that foreign policy and domestic policy are seen as occurring in two different spaces. Right. And what we're setting out to do is showing how you can't cleanly divorce those two arenas and what is done abroad does have a very real impact on what's going on at home. Things aren't occurring in an institutional vacuum. Before we get into how it comes back home, can we get into some of the things that you're talking about that are happening in the foreign policy or foreign interventionism scene that we're worried about coming back? So what we what we talk about is not necessarily that there's like any one particular thing. So one thing that people often talk about as being used domestically, and we do get into this in the book quite a bit, is equipment. So one of the chapters in the book talks about drones. When we talk about things like police militarization, we talk about Uh, military equipment going to police. But it's not just physical equipment that we're talking about. So that would be what we refer to as physical capital or the actual tools of foreign intervention. But we're also interested in things like human capital. So individuals who are engaged in foreign intervention, they have to either possess certain skills, uh, and we talk about what some of those skills and mindsets are in the book, or they have to acquire them in order to be successful in that job. When they come home, they don't just leave those skills just abroad. They, they bring those and then they integrate those skills into whatever organizations they decide to participate in when they're back home. Uh, we also look at something related to that, but is distinct, which is referred to as uh, organizational 
dynamics. So the different structures that individuals have operated in as part of foreign intervention, we look at how those come to be integrated as well. So it's happening on a few different margins. Um, I also would want to point out too that it's not exclusive to uh, active interventions. So talking about tools that are developed as a part of an active or ongoing conflict, that's one type of intervention that we could talk about, but it's also the preparation for intervention, which is also important. So we'll see that things that were developed as part of a potential war with the former Soviet Union, for example, uh, also wind up being important. And before we get we get to those examples, I want to continue to focus on the three channels that you were talking about. So like physical capital, just as an example for our listeners to get more into this if they haven't read the book already. So as you said, these are things like vehicles and effectively the equipment that's being used in foreign intervention. So we don't need to spend too, too much time on that, I don't think, unless I, I mess that up. Um, the the human capital, that's interesting. So you talk about people uh, that are sent abroad or ultimately working in the military, they acquire a certain set of skills. Can, we, can you get into some examples? Like for instance, what kind of things are, are people doing on in the environment of foreign intervention or in the military that typically you'd want to say, okay, these things aren't useful domestically, or at least we wouldn't want them to come back, at least on the face of it. What, what kind of skills are we talking about? So there, there are a few different things that we could talk about. One of the points that we emphasize are several of what we call the interventionist mindset. And so certain things that people who intervene have to be comfortable with uh, in order to uh, go out and participate in these types of interventions. So without listing off everything that we talk about, some of those things would be uh, they're competent in a large bureaucratic structure in achieving really um, sometimes big goals in a remarkably complex environment. Uh, they have to be comfortable imposing uh, their vision of what is right or what is correct on a different population uh, and have to be comfortable using various levels of force to, to do so. Um, other types of physical capital that we look at um, and that we have integrated into the various chapters of the book include things like people who've developed various methods for surveillance, for conducting different types of torture, uh, and also just, uh, again, to link it back in, uh, observing these different types of organizational structures uh, that they then bring back with them. And as you're saying, like, the interesting part of this isn't that they're trained for a certain uh, activity or mission or operation they need to be doing overseas. As you said, uh, when you have all that human capital doing a certain thing designed for a certain purpose, it ultimately has to come back home. That's that's the important part of this channel that you're talking about here when it comes to human capital. Right. And th that's certainly not exclusive to people who train for foreign interventions. I think anyone who's ever had a job can appreciate that you acquire certain skills in whatever jobs that you do, and that there's some piece of that that you then take with you when you work in future jobs. Uh, one example that I use is that I worked at a hospital over the course of one summer when I was in college. Uh, and even though I have now thankfully nothing to do with medicine, uh, no one would want me to be their nurse. <laughs> um, even though I don't have anything to do with that, the, the skills that I learned in terms of working under pressure and time management and working with a variety of different people, I've taken those with me right. and other people have similar experiences. So we would expect the same kind of thing for people who are involved in a variety of different components of a foreign intervention. 
and it struck me what you mentioned it before and then it also was in the book as well that it's it's not only the skills itself as you mentioned before but like a certain mindset so that that's very interesting too if someone spends let's say five or ten years or maybe even 20 however long it is uh, of time as their career within a certain mindset like you said it's the whether it's that you know bureaucracy is a good thing and it works out or that force is required to render some sort of uh, outcome like this isn't just once again the skills that they're using within these circumstances it's also like a mindset how they approach problems so that's another interesting aspect as well yeah exactly and so one of the things that, that we point out in the book is that um you know this this goes in in a variety of different areas and so we we think about maybe people having a particular mindset or being particularly, um, you know, favorable toward, uh, let's say a large military bureaucracy within the context of that bureaucracy or within the context of government. Uh, but it's not limited to that. So it's not just individuals who are coming back and then going into other public offices, but it's also coming into a variety of private contexts as well. And uh, so, like, that was the human capital channel. We talked about physical capital as well. And then organizational dynamics was one, was one of the channels that you touched on and as well was, was in the book. So c- can you explain that a little bit, too? Because I found that that wasn't as um, naturally understood by me as the other two when I really started learning about it. But as, of course, I read through it, it made sense to me. But I think it'd be useful for you to you go through it here for everyone listening. So when we refer to organizational dynamics, we're just talking about the various organizational or institutional structures that people are involved in when they engage in foreign intervention and then bringing those structures with them um, and then implementing them in a variety of ways in organizations after they get home. So uh, the best example of that, I think, or one of the best examples uh, from the book is when we talk about the advent of SWAT teams. So without going into too much detail, though, we, we can certainly do that. Um, if, if we want, looking at how an individual sees his position or this uh, this reconnaissance unit that he is in in Vietnam recognizes that organizational structure as being potentially beneficial for use in uh, law enforcement when returning home and then implementing that structure. Because they, they generally had a certain set of goals to achieve in the military setting. So, you know, this person with their skills and also the way the way they these skills were used elsewhere when they come back home, they, they see some general applications for, for domestic purposes. Right. So that's ultimately at a high level. Once we said that there's human capital, organizational dynamics and physical capital. So the three channels that ultimately the effects of foreign intervention come back domestically. You also talked that there were in the book, there's two conditions for this stuff to easily come back home effectively that this was citizen sphere and the consolidation of state power i was wondering if you could go through each of those and talk about like what exactly we mean by those two conditions needing to be there for for these things to come back sure so we talk about um consult so we we mentioned both of those things so i'll start with the consolidation of state power so one of the things that we typically think about as providing a check on government uh, and one of the earmarks of federalism is that you have maybe your central government but then you have peripheral units who are supposed to be providing checks and balances on what that centralized government is doing and one of the things that foreign intervention is effective at doing is drawing those peripheral political units toward the center So now maybe those smaller government organizations who were providing a check on the larger government are now 
intimately entwined with what the broader government is doing. And so within the context of post 9-11 and the war on terror in the United States, we see that now you have a whole lot of agencies who before that period had you know, not nearly as much to do with the federal government are now all involved in supposed counterterrorism policy. So you see things like joint terrorism task forces, which incorporate both uh, a number of local, state, and federal agencies, all with the mission of combating terror. So that's one of the effects that we talk about. The second piece that we point to is the importance or what we often see is uh, fear in the citizenry. And so we base or we, we link this explicitly uh, to the work of another economist named Robert Higgs. So he talks about fear in a number of contexts, his book, uh, Crisis and Leviathan. He also has some work on the political economy of fear. And what he talks about is that when there is a crisis, so whether that crisis is real, so say something like a terror attack, or if that crisis is perceived, so maybe it's not really uh, anything to be afraid of at all, but nevertheless, people are afraid of it. There's this natural inclination, I think, for people to want government or somebody to, quote unquote, do something to fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so with this desire of the population to feel safe, to have someone jump in and fix it, what we see is that this provides then an avenue for government to expand uh, in ways that maybe we didn't see it expand before. Uh, Also importantly with that is that you wind up seeing that citizens become a lot more permissible of things which otherwise would not have been acceptable. Uh, An example of this would be flying pre-9-11, post-9-11. So if you had told somebody in, say, 1995 or 1999 that every time that they were flying that a federal agent might be uh, patting them down, including in intimate areas, or patting their, you know, teenage or even their younger children down in an airport, they would have told you that you were nuts. But now this happens every day across all airports in the United States and people don't think anything about it, nor do they think about, uh, you know, having to take off their shoes or take off their belts or, or anything like that. Yeah. So so these conditions sort of play off each other, the conditions that allow, like you were saying, the the effects of foreign intervention come back home. Like you have the consolidation state power, you're saying, but what can accelerate that is ultimately like that citizen fear, like you were saying. Right. And before we get into like a few specific examples, because I I did want to, because the the book does as well. And of course, we can't like read the book here, but I thought it'd be interesting to actually get into some of the ones you talked about. But what was really interesting to me is that you said that uh, we have to consider the nature of domestic institutions and how that affects sort of the, their scope and their growth. You were talking about that, like, for instance, there's bureaucratic incentives to hide from budget cuts primarily, rather than, for instance, uh, you, you know, best achieving their mandate, right? Like when budget cycle comes around, obviously their incentive is to show that whatever department this is, let's say it's the TSA, for example, they want to show that they're doing a good job and that and that they are ultimately useful and either need the same budget or an increased budget. So that was very interesting to me as well that you explored that in the book, that uh, we also need to consider that the government isn't sort of this one big thing. There's multiple institutions in it and they all have their own incentives as well to continue the growth of their scope. Right. So one of the things that's important to keep in mind, and I'm glad that you brought this up, so the the standard literature on the economics of bureaucracy points out exactly what it is that, that you're talking about, which is that absent of profit and loss signals, what bureaucracies have an incentive to do 
uh, or how they measure success is a better way of putting it, is by looking at their discretionary budgets and the number of subordinate personnel that they have. And so they'll then undertake actions that will help them achieve those goals. And so that leads to things like uh, exhausting your budget, overspending, lack of an incentive to really uh, cut your budget. Um, but the other thing that I think is important too that uh, that we're also getting at here is the importance of incentives more generally. Um, and particularly as it pertains to a lot of these examples, when we're looking at the integration of physical capital or the human capital of individuals involved in foreign intervention, um, the, the payoffs are potentially high. Um, people can have an immense amount of personal success by integrating these skills and these tools uh, into domestic life. So this is this is back to like that human capital channel we're talking about, right? Right. Right, and how that affects the organizational dynamics. And uh, and one thing I also found that was a very interesting in the book as well is like you differentiated, for instance, like for instance, the size of a budget a department might have versus what what the scope of it actually is, like what it's actually covering. And you didn't, I don't think the terminology was used. Maybe it was, if memory serves me correctly. But the idea that these departments as well all all ultimately through this process sort of have like this scope creep. Right. So one of the things that we were to do in the book, and I think one of the contributions that we're really looking to make is to explore expansions in government uh, in terms of scope in addition to scale. So we're not just saying that scale is important. And I should also probably define what we mean by scale and scope. Right. Yes. So by scale, we just mean the overall like size of government. By scope, we mean the portfolio of activities that government is involved in. So economists have typically felt more comfortable talking about issues of scale because we have some way to effectively quantify that, although there's there's problems with with that uh, with that too. But we can look at things like government spending as a percentage of GDP, the number of government employees. We can look at uh, you know government spending over time. There's a lot of different ways that we could potentially measure that. Scope, though, is much, much more difficult to measure. Um, it's oftentimes been assumed that scale and scope are correlated with each other, but that may not necessarily be the case. So we can think of examples where you might have a very large government that's limited in scope, but a very small government that has you know, a very expansive scope. Mm -hmm. And so since scope is a lot more difficult to measure, we have to come up with a different way of looking at or um, quantifying changes in scope. And so what this book looks to do is to examine not just or not just discuss issues in terms of scale, but also in terms of the scope margin. So looking how it is that the scope of government activities expands. Um, and this is, uh, I should mention, a part of a, of a broader literature on the growth of government. So there are a lot of different people who've talked about how and why governments tend to grow. And we see this as being a, a complement to those literatures uh, and an identification on uh, how it is that in some cases government can expand. So, so in your view, if someone comes to the table and just focuses on what would be quote government spending like at a high level, then they're they're missing a lot of the discussion. Then, right. So, I think, um, and I I think that the cases that we identify in the book are are compelling. That if we're just focused on the monetary aspect of this, we're missing a big part of the picture. Uh, particularly for people who have any kind of concern for things like civil liberties at, at all. Um, 
people who are concerned about, uh, you know, policing, I think, should also be concerned. Uh, people who have uh, any kind of of questions about, uh, you know, e- expanded uh, activities along the, the borders or anything like that. Um, I think that what we've done or what we're hoping that we've done is point to people that this is that they're that the scope margin is is important. And, and the inverse of everything we're talking about too is let's say some sort of uh, fiscally conscious lobby group does end up successfully lobbying for some sort of fifteen percent reduction in like a police budget. Let's say for an example, they aren't addressing the other part of it as we were talking about, which is okay. Well, what are they still doing with that remaining budget that they have, rather right. than just the fact that oh great we scored a, a budgetary win? Yes, that's exactly right. Do you find that uh, it's it's even tougher to discuss these sorts of things within the context of something else you outline in the book, which is that sort of this idea of military strength and military power is actually in some areas like part of American culture in a certain way. You, you touched on that in the book. And I, so I guess the two-part question is, one is on the one hand, everything we're talking about made worse and either accelerated by the fact that there is a strong military culture in the United States. And on the other hand, as I was saying, does it make it hard to stop at that point? So we, it's, it's a really good question. So we talk about this militarist ideology uh, quite a bit in the book. Um, And there is this, I think, push or this, um, this tendency for people in the United States to have a very high opinion of the military. Um, It hasn't always been the case, um, but certainly in this particular period of time, um, the military has kind of become synonymous with being uh, patriotic, let's say. So to criticize what's going on with the military is going to get you labeled as being un-American, unpatriotic, and uh, and all of those kinds of things. Um, we also identify this militarist ideology as something that is problematic from the perspective of potentially like pumping the brakes or potentially reversing the boomerang effect. Um, because in order to get, uh, or at least we argue, that in order to maybe mitigate these effects that we're talking about requires people to really change how it is that they view the actions uh, of the U.S. government abroad and the actions of the U.S. government domestically. Uh, And I think that's probably a pretty tall order uh, for for a lot of people. Um, So I I wish I could be more optimistic on that. And I I do have some maybe long-term optimism, but not not particularly in the short run. So at at the beginning, it's interesting to me, I I just thought of this as you were saying that, that at the beginning of the conversation, we focus specifically on, let's say, professionals or or military personnel coming back from, uh, let's say, a tour or a career in the military uh, where they may have uh, a certain mindset and a certain set of skills. So on the other hand, is there sort of like a a public mindset, as you were saying now, that that once again, there's this idea that things can be taken taken care of uh, by force or with, uh, I guess, military style tactics. Do you think that the public is more used to see, like, although some, let me take a step back and say that there are certainly a lot of people that are against it. And we see a lot of resistance against, for instance, like, uh, you know, um, military vehicles on streets and things being used for regular policing. But uh, is there also another section of the population, uh, you know, slowly getting more used to this? Uh, I think so. So, um, and again, I, I would agree with you for sure that there, there are definitely people who are pushing back against this. I think 
something that I would point to is what we talked about earlier with respect to citizen fear is playing a really important role in all of this. Um, I also think, though, that there is, too, maybe some kind of a desensitizing going on in a lot of cases. I think the the TSA, which we don't talk about in in this book, um, is is a good example. Uh, I think people are also maybe more used to, let's say, the other example that you pointed to, police in heavy Kevlar with um, heavier, uh, what are called like long guns. So uh, I think people do maybe get more used to that. Um, and it's often portrayed whether uh, it's accurate or not. And I would argue that it's uh, likely not accurate, that it's that it's necessary. Um, but if you, particularly when we talk about police, uh, if people will often push back and say things like, well, but if the the, the terrorists or the criminals are coming at police officers with, you know, heavy weaponry and they're in, uh, you know, bulletproof vest, like, don't you want police to have those same things? Um, and so I, I would say that, yes, that that mentality is absolutely there. And I think there certainly are a lot of people that are just simply used to seeing these sorts of things. Uh, I, I have witnessed a few conversations where someone may voice either an objection or some reservation they have about seeing heavier, like military style equipment in policing. And then someone else may say something like, oh, you just have, you have a problem with that? Like you have a problem with guns or something? And like, I'm you know, so I find that like once again, there may be some sort of, um, I don't know how to phrase it, but there may be, like you were saying, the idea that people just slowly get desensitized and more used to certain things that... And, and it ultimately results in them not having really any sort of moral objection. They might not be for it or against it. They're just kind of neutral. It's like, this is the way it is. Right. And we, we said we, we don't talk about um, those specific examples in this book. We're, we're working on another project at this point, which is looking at the, the disconnect between how things are often portrayed, particularly post 9-11, uh, and, and the realities of what's actually going on. And so even even if the police and say like heavier, uh, you know, with heavier equipment aren't really doing anything to keep us safer. Um, it's often portrayed that way, um, both by officials and by media. And then people, people often repeat that and they said they, they believe it. Right. Yeah. There's, there's sort of like this, like both on the part of the citizens and then also like institutions themselves, there's like a, a sort of self image of what's actually happening. And then, then, as you said, that's can be contrasted with the reality if there's actually some stats or or like research we can bring in to actually say okay what is this actually helping or not whether or not it makes us feel good or some people feel good i should say right and i I think we're at about the point we're going to take a break so this has been great so far Uh, you're on the curious task and we're talking with abby hall the curious task is a podcast from the institute for liberal studies Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Danny Leroy, and Darcy Giroux. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. I'm talking with Abby Hall here today. Abby, before the break, we, we talked about a lot, but uh, one thing that before we get into a few specific examples of, of uh, that would illustrate what we're talking about today, I wanted to close off the front half of the discussion with a bit more about patriotism. We touched on it, but we didn't really drill deeper into it. And at the end of your book, I remember there was a section on this as well, where you say that one of the dangers alongside of everything else we've been talking about is 
the idea now that people start mistaking what patriotism is for loyalty to the government or the state itself. So that was very interesting. So I thought before we get to some examples, maybe you'd like to explore that a bit further, because I think that's that's really key to this conversation, too, is that if someone were to critique, for instance, the militarization of the police, which we'll get into in a little bit, that they're critiquing ultimately the state, but not what it means to be an, an American or something vague like that, right? Yeah, that's actually one of my favorite parts of of the conclusion, because I think it's it's particularly powerful, um, which is talking about exactly what it is that you mentioned, that people seem to view um, their, their country and the state and the government as being the same things. Um, but these aren't the same things. So to question what the government is doing is seen as being unpatriotic or seen as being against your country. Um, and one of the things that I that I would argue, and I, I think my co-author would ag- agree with this as well, uh, is that to really be actually patriotic is to question mm-hmm. what it is that your government is doing. If you're really interested in the founding principles of the United States and you take your freedom and the freedom of others seriously, then you absolutely have, I think, not only a right, but a duty to fundamentally question what the people in power are doing. The the country certainly didn't start by asking permission if everything was okay and then having a constitution. Right. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) Right. So that's great. So I think now we can get to some examples here. So we've set the stage with the channels that um, the effects of foreign intervention come back through. We've talked about the conditions that enable this to happen. Um, Obviously, like I said, we're not going to sit here and read the book back to people, but I think we should explore all of that with some examples, as I was saying. So let's talk about the militarization of the police. You, You talked about you touched on this in the first half. You talked about SWAT teams, for instance, is a great illustration of how all this comes together. But maybe you can take us through that front to back. For sure, feel free to take your time. Tell us the story. Like, how, how sure. does all this come together with this illustration? So I should start by saying that just like the rest of the book is not meant to be like a monocausal theory for the growth of government, this is definitely by no means like a, a full accounting or a monocausal explanation for the militarization of police. Um one place that might be relevant to start is to convince you that the police are actually militarized. Um, So one way that we do that is by measuring the existence of SWAT teams or police paramilitary units or PPUs. And so if you look, the first SWAT teams or PPUs were established in the 1960s, which we can get into uh, in a little bit. Um, By the time you get to the 1980s, you have, I think, um, so moderately sized cities, um, you have some percentage of them that have a SWAT team or a police paramilitary unit. Um, but then by the time we get to today, you have, I think it's like 90 plus percent of moderately sized cities. So wow. populations of 50,000 or more have a SWAT team or a police paramilitary unit. Um, and they are seeing tens of thousands of deployments on on an annual basis. Um, and so these are for all kinds of things. So people typically think about stuff like, you know, hostage situations or bank robberies, like call in the SWAT team. Um, but these things are often sometimes used for everything from domestic disputes to people who are threatening to commit suicide, they are sending in a SWAT team. Right. Um, and there are other ways, again, that we could potentially measure uh, militarization as well for people who are familiar with the American cases. If we look 
uh, at, say, Ferguson, Missouri, that is typically an example that people point to, um, but also Watertown, Massachusetts, after the bombings at the Boston Marathon, uh, you had the local police uh, who basically shut down that small city. Um, and the pictures from it, if you if you pull them up, say do a, a Google image search of Watertown, Massachusetts afterwards, uh, I think you'd be really, people who haven't seen them, I think would be really surprised. And I think that if you ask people where those images were taken, they probably would not have told you that they were taken in the United States hmm. because it very much looks like martial law. Right. Um, so when we start talking about the origins of police militarization and as they relate to foreign intervention, we actually start by looking at the U.S. occupation of the Philippines. So this was actually uh, 1898. So we're starting back uh, very far. And the Philippines was striking, I'll just mention this briefly, because for a conflict that we very rarely hear about and in doing some informal polling, I find that people who are educated in the United States, if they're aware of this conflict at all, it was mentioned as like a footnote to the Spanish-American War. So it's like, there's a Spanish-American War, and oh yeah, here's a thing in the Philippines afterwards, but we don't have to talk about that. So it was this brief conflict where the uh, there was a resistance in the Philippines that was interested in ousting the Spanish who had been ruling the country for about 400 years. Uh, and they were under the impression that after the U.S. helped them oust the Spanish, that they would be independent. Uh, the U.S. government subsequently, after helping drive the Spanish out, annexed the island chain. And this led to uh, a brief conflict, but a very long, about decade-long insurgency. And so as part of that insurgency, the U.S. government set up what was called the Philippine Constablery, or the PC. So Constablery is a military uh, police force, which is supposed to police civilians. And so one of the things that we point out uh, in the book is that outside of the domestic constraints uh, that a government faces within its own geographic borders, they have a lot more... Um, Freedom maybe is not the right word, but they have a lot more, uh, they have a much stronger ability to test tools of social control. And so this was one such example where they were able to test a variety of different tools of social control. So this comes up in the surveillance chapter. This comes up when we talk about torture. Um, it also comes up in policing. So they were able to test and hone a variety of different uh, policing methods. So you have individuals who are part of this uh, Philippine constabulary who come home and then set up similar organizations. So there's that administrative dynamics piece, uh, or they integrate the variety, the different uh, varieties of human capital that they learned. One example that we look to um, is a man named August Vollmer. So August Vollmer is known as the father of modern policing. Uh, after serving in the Philippines, he came home. He joined the Berkeley Police Department in California. He would later be the police chief of the Berkeley PD. Uh, he would serve as the uh, Los Angeles Police Department police chief uh, for, I think, uh, a year or two while he was on leave from Berkeley. Uh, and he was also a consultant. So he worked with other police departments to set up a variety of different departments throughout the U.S. So his influence is really important. Uh, 
Uh, we look at him a lot because when reading biographers or reading biographies of him, his biographers will say things like uh, people were under the impression that martial law had been declared when he was in charge and he felt that that worked to his advantage. Hmm. Yeah. So Volmer was of the opinion that things should be run operationally in police departments like the military. And so he set out to, to do that. Um, he was a fan of things like universal fingerprinting, um, which he pushed for uh, nationally, not successfully, obviously. Um, but he was responsible for implementing a variety of different policing techniques. Some of these things we might not consider, um, you know, necessarily bad, by the way. So things like uh, letting police officers have access to places where they could call into the station remotely, or putting police on, you know, this you know, technology as sophisticated as bicycles and then later on cars, uh, things like that. Um, but he's particularly important from that administrative dynamics piece in that by the time we get uh, to, say, the 1960s, which is where we start looking at the rise of SWAT teams, that those organizational structures, those military structures, had already been implemented and come to be seen as normal uh, within a number of police departments throughout the United States. So here's a case where, once again, it's not just about like equipment, like that's part of it and things like that. But as you said, it, it's the skills and the, and in this case, one person, but human capital coming back from a military application and bringing sort of uh, more closer together how the military would do things versus how the, po the police would well, police, the public. Right. So SWAT teams is, is the next place that we go. So we, we talk about why maybe we don't see police militarization or the extent of police militarization in, say, the you know early to mid-1900s that we do in the later half of that century. Um, so we talk about things like you know, having easily identifiable in-groups versus out-groups. So a lot of times the other folks that we talk about who were involved in the, the Philippine constabulary who then came back uh, home and used those skills, uh, we talk about them uh, in the context of things like uh, crushing minors' revolts or uh, just very, very specific uh, groups of individuals. Um, but then that's, that starts to change later on. So in the 1960s, um, out in Los Angeles, so keeping in mind that this is the same area where August Vollmer had been actively working for, you know, several decades prior. So we get to the mid-1960s, and there are the Watts riots going on in Los Angeles. So there are these race riots happening, uh, and there is an individual in the LAPD by the name of John Nelson. Now, John Nelson was a Vietnam veteran. So here we have another foreign intervention. Um, and Nelson was a part of what's called an elite force reconnaissance unit or an elite recon unit. Now, people hear reconnaissance and they think, oh, information gathering. Um, that's not really an accurate representation of what these units do. They were highly trained and very effective uh, a killing force. So we have stats in the book about things like uh, their levels of engagement. So how often do they engage the enemy versus the enemy engaging them? Uh, what's their kill ratio? So how many people or how many enemies do they kill per Marine that they lose? Things like that. And Nelson, in looking at the situation in Los Angeles, says, I think I have an idea for how we can better control crowds 
at these at these riots. And so he takes this idea to uh, Daryl Gates, who is an inspector at the time. He would later be the chief of the LAPD. Uh, he's a World War II veteran. And he takes Nelson takes these ideas to Gates and he says, I think we should set up a team that is modeled after this elite force recon unit. Uh, Gates likes this idea. He takes this idea to its his superiors, and in short order, the first SWAT team is created. Um, it was originally intended to be called the Special Weapons and Attack Team, but it was thought that that was too politically unpalatable, and so instead they changed the name to Special Weapons and Tactics. So uh, each member of the original SWAT team had prior military training. The unit was set up in the same uh, manner as an elite force recon unit. So you have uh, like a forward guard and a rear guard. Uh, and then after, uh, after this unit is established, it quickly becomes a permanent fixture in the LAPD. And then we see this marked pr proliferation uh, across the United States. And we attribute that to a couple of things, primarily the war on drugs, uh, but also the war on terror. So in both of those cases, what's different about those conflicts compared to, say, something like the war in Vietnam, World War II, World War I, you have no clearly, you, you do have some clearly defined like external enemy in those cases. So with respect to the war on drugs, often, you know, foreign drug cartels as being your outgroup. But there's also a quote-unquote internal enemy, which would be your drug dealers, your drug manufacturers in the United States. And it's very difficult sometimes to figure out who those people are. Um, but then you also have that fear piece that we talked about earlier. So people being particularly worried about things you know, like the supposed epidemic of crack babies and, and things like that. Uh, and then same thing for the war on terror. We have that foreign component. Um, but there's also then this push or this movement toward being concerned about what have been called a homegrown terrorist. So you see people like the former Attorney General Eric Holder saying things like uh, this idea of domestic terrorist uh, keeping him up at night. And so there's this cultivation of this fear piece, and then those tools of intervention that have been integrated then start to be progressively turned inward. So now you have police who although historically have been given the mission to protect the, the populace, um, have now been integrated into kind of this militaristic mission. And you think about the mission of the military, uh, and it's not to protect the rights of citizens, it's to engage and destroy enemies of the United States in combat. So you've now put the military on the, not, sorry, not the military, you put the police then in this militaristic position and you put them on the quote unquote front lines of this war on drugs and war on terror. Because when it's introduced, I suppose, I suppose, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, this is one elite group of people over here that think that certain way that they're the SWAT team, they deal with this kind of stuff. But over time, as as that sort of spreads throughout the institution, I, I would suppose that even if the, the specific weapons, tactics, etc. aren't something that all the police are trained in, that this uh, this mentality 
must have an overlap effect with everything else that's going on. Right. So we talk about that to some extent. And and to mention too, because the physical capital piece of this is important too. So it's not just the the administrative dynamics that we talked about, um, but it's also at this same period. So when we see the start of the war on drugs, you also see the implementation of a variety of programs in the United States um, to provide domestic police forces with military grade equipment. Right. So there is uh, what's now program 1033, which if people are familiar with this debate, they, they may have heard of that program before, um, that allows surplus military equipment to be uh, sold or in some cases given to police departments uh, for them to, to use. One of the stipulations of this program is that police departments are supposed to use the equipment that they're given within a year. Otherwise, they're supposed to be returned to the DOD. So for economists, we look at this and we say, well, that might create an incentive problem. <laughs> because Just a bit. In, right. Because <laughs> if you're like, well, I have this tank and, or I have this uh, this armored car and I if I don't use it, I'm, I'm going to lose it. So I, I better take this, this out and use it. Um, so we talk about the, the mentality piece as well in in the book, we look at the integration of military members into police departments, um, but the data on that isn't particularly good. Uh, the DOD does not either collect, or at least it doesn't release publicly, what it is that people are, are doing after they leave the military. And so we know, and we, we point to a variety of police departments who have made it a point to say that they are recruiting veterans. Uh, we have some interviews that other people have done with uh, either police chiefs or people who are former military who are in the police or considering entering the police force. Um, the person who I think has done some really exceptional work looking at this mentality piece, um, it's a journalist named Radley Belko. He has a really phenomenal book called Rise of the Warrior Cop. Uh, and we point to some of his work in, in the chapter, uh, looking at, of all things, uh, t-shirts that cops wear hmm. to kind of illustrate the, the integration of this, uh, the, this change in mentality that police officers may have had toward the civilian population. So they say things like uh, police helping perpetrators, you know, fall down the stairs since 1776 or two to the chest, one to the head equals math for cops, things like that. Right. Um, or do the police a favor, beat yourself up. And so we, we, we touch on some of that uh, certainly. Um, and, and it is important for what we're talking about because that, that integration or that, that change in, in mindset, uh, is, is important, uh, and, and part of this phenomenon that we're talking about of those militaristic tools and ideologies being turned from being used abroad to also being used at home. One, one thing that's very interesting I find as I'm listening to you talk through that is that once again, when you put things like SWAT teams and the militarization of police in context and tell the full story as, as, as you did, that you see that it isn't, you know, uh, local police chiefs and sheriffs and politicians getting together, figuring out a domestic problem. As you said, these are people coming with different skill sets and different mentalities and approaches uh, back home and seeing how those can kind of be applied domestically. So th that's right. that's the, the most interesting takeaway for this particular illustration, at least for me listening to that, is that that's striking because... Because someone who doesn't know the history of how these things came to be might just think, oh, well, you know, at some point someone decided this this uh, was a good idea. Like, do we 
vote for it at some point, you know, like, so I find that it's very interesting, the full context. And then the other example and illustration we wanted to get to was torture that that's discussed in your book. So maybe you could take us through that as an illustration. Sure. So torture is one of the the interesting, or I I mean, of course, I think that all all of them are interesting. And I hope that if people read the book, they'll they'll find them all interesting, too. Um, I was surprised by the research and how far back the the police militarization piece went. And I was similarly surprised with, with torture. So we talk about torture today primarily within the context of U.S. prisons. So people might be familiar with some relatively recent uh, journal, like journalistic um, endeavors that have looked at things like, uh, you know, black sites in, in Chicago. So people like being arrested and not having any kind of, of due process. Um, and so we, we look at the use of torture uh, in a couple specific instances. Uh, and again, we, find, we found ourselves going back to the U.S. occupation of the Philippines. And so within the context of quashing the resistance in the Philippines, within the context of the Philippine constabulary, we see the development of a variety of torture techniques. One that we highlight specifically is what's called a water cure. So it's a type of torture known as pumping, which is... Uh, say like a cousin of waterboarding, which people might be more familiar with. Um, So the water cure involved forcibly putting uh, gallons of water into a victim's stomach and then either forcing them to throw up and repeating the process or waiting for the person to uh, naturally like digest and and eliminate the the excessive amount of water. Um, Remarkably painful, if nothing else, um, but potentially fatal. Within short order of the water cure being developed in the Philippines, we see reports of similar techn- a similar technique uh, and others as well being used within the United States. Um, so much so that these types of techniques are actually given a name. So if people are familiar with the terminology to be given the third degree, um, that's what it's in reference to. So this had become such a problem that there had actually been a, a commission put in place to investigate the torture and improper treatment of people who had been arrested. Um, and it was starting to come out. So it's called the Wickersham Commission. Um, people can get a hold of the report, but it's not very easy to find, uh, particularly hard copies. And the reason for this is because it started coming out right at the time that the Great Depression was going on. And so people started focusing on other things. So we look at that as one example. And then another example that we look at, which is more contemporary, has to do with torture involving um, a number of individuals, mostly uh, black males in sector two of Chicago. So this has to do with the case of of John Burge. And this is something that is more widely known, um, although uh, I wasn't particularly familiar with it before I started researching this. Um, John Burge was uh, was, uh, in charge of unit two or sector two, uh, area two at uh, in Chicago, and he was a, a Vietnam veteran. And although it's he's never ad- admitted to it, there are uh, other individuals who have stated that Burge and his compatriots were engaged in the use and development of a variety of torture techniques in Vietnam. Uh, we talk about uh, specifically the development of what are called clean torture techniques. So you think about 
maybe older, older style torture techniques, you know, if you're, you know, you're going to bust somebody's kneecap or take someone's fingernails off, that's going to leave a mark. Um, but clean torture techniques, by contrast, don't. So if done properly, properly from the perspective of the person doing the torture, uh, you can electrocute someone, you can uh, make people feel like they're suffocating without leaving any kind of permanent marks. And so what was happening in Chicago uh, was particularly the use of a, like a modified field telephone to uh, sh uh, shock uh, prisoners or people who were being detained. Uh, there were other things as well. So people being beaten, people being dangled out of windows, uh, being told that they were going to be shot and putting, you know, guns to their head, that type of thing. Um, and when Burge was uh, ultimately put on a trial, um, so he was ultimately convicted of, I, I think it was was perjury, and he served some time in, in prison, but not uh, not nearly as much as I think a lot of people were um, maybe expecting or, or hoping might be the, the right word to use there. Um, it had been, te he, people testified that he had referred to this torture technique of using a modified teal field telephone as quote unquote, the Vietnam special. So again, mm -hmm. we have yet another instance of this seemingly very clear line between the development of particular techniques, in this case, torture techniques abroad, and then being used domestically. Uh, we also point to some more recent reports of uh, people reporting being tortured in a, with a variety of methods uh, used in the war on terror at places like the Clinton Correctional Facility. Um, although one of the things that's true about examining all of these, but I think torture uh, and maybe surveillance more specifically, is that finding concrete data on these is obviously remarkably difficult. And so we wind up doing a lot of digging and there are maybe some more holes than what we would like, but we feel like that what we do have makes a convincing case. Our time is winding down here. So I do want to make sure I get one of the notes I put to myself here, the big asterisk beside it, after we, we talk through all that and, and with a few illustrations as well. So how do you think like that we go about trying to solve this problem, both the short and long run. Obviously, the long run answer is, well, we, we get rid of this problem. But but, <laughs> but but is it ultimately focusing on, you know, once again, that the scope question we were talking about before? Like, is it it's obviously probably something that can't just be slashed and burned, right? This is going to require, at least I think, from listening to you, some sort of gradually gradual whittle down of, of what's going on here. Uh, we, we do make the point, by the way, that this is not like a, a thing that is always going to happen. Um, we also note that the boomerang effect that we're talking about is sometimes fast. So like in the case of drones, like it's been a relatively quick integration of the technology from being used abroad to being used domestically. But in other cases, and torture and police militarization are good examples of this, it's a, a long and variable lag. And so one of the, the things that we point to um, is being skeptical in general of a foreign intervention and being cognizant of the fact that this is a, a very real, often unidentified, uh, unintended consequence of foreign intervention. Um, but the other piece that we point to that I, I want to point people to is the importance uh, that uh, the ideology of the citizen replays. So to the extent that people are okay 
with what's going on, then I don't really have a lot of confidence in things getting rolled back and changing. So if people are okay with police being militarized, if people are okay with being, you know, surveilled more frequently in in a number of ways, then the the chances of this rolling back, I think, are are, are slim. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are cases where people do not find things to be acceptable and that ideology serves as a potentially effective check on some of these behaviors. So one of the points to make, again, linking this back to something we've already talked about with thinking about torture, um, we've not seen the widespread use of torture in the United States. So it's not as though people are knowingly being carted off from their homes and, and tortured and then they, you know, are, are returned back at some point. Um, it's happening in a clandestine nature against a, a vulnerable population, people who are, are in jail or people who are in prison. Um, because this widespread torture hypothetical that I'm talking about would, would not be something that would be tolerated by the American populace. Um, so we, we talk about is that the, the ideology of the citizenry is being a particularly important check um, And to the extent that the U.S. continues to engage in foreign intervention, the the onus should really be on those who are proponents of that intervention to illustrate or to find some convincing way to inform people who are concerned about these particular issues that whatever hypothetical intervention they're talking about uh, is unlikely to lead to these negative outcomes. Right. As opposed to, hey, we got to go intervene over there. Let us know if you have any problems with it in the meantime and present your case why we shouldn't. It should be the other way around, as you said. Exactly. Makes sense. All right. Well, our our time is is fully wound down here. We always like to try and bring everything to a finer point in conclusion if we can, although we we uh, did did talk about a lot, and, and it was great. So I, I will toss it back to you, so back to you, so you can have the last word on that. So ultimately, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here today, on how foreign policy can bring tyranny back home? I think the the main takeaway is that when we talk about foreign intervention, we're aware of some of the immediate consequences. So we think about things like the monetary cost. We think about things like the cost to military personnel to civilians in whatever country is being intervened upon. But there are other costs that are remarkably important that are often either not discussed at all or they're downplayed. Uh, And some of these uh, relate directly to the domestic population. So my hope would be that people who are uh, proponents of intervention, or who maybe aren't skeptical of interventions, but value their personal freedom and the freedom of those that they care about, will take the information that we've presented here and and, and bring some enhanced skepticism to what it is that the U.S. does abroad. Because what we see here is that Foreign intervention is providing an avenue that can and does effectively erode the constraints that we rely on um, to protect the the freedoms that that we have have come to enjoy. Um, And so I think that that's one of the the 
probably perhaps the, the biggest takeaway that I hope that people who who would either listen to this podcast and who would read the book, I hope that they would take away. Great. I, I think that's an excellent way to end it. Abby Hall, thank you so much for talking with me today on The Curious Task. Thank you for having me. Yes. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.